Our passage this morning is in John chapter 13. And if you've been paying attention to our pace through Scripture to this point, it should seem a little out of order to you. We've been making a pass through redemptive history. And over the last four weeks, we've seen God's sovereign playfulness in creation, our fall into God's gracious arms after our rebellion in the garden, God's undying promise at Abraham's altar, and the strength of His love in our prison escape through the Exodus. But it seems like we're picking up the pace considerably, doesn't it? I mean, the Exodus last week and Jesus in the upper room this week. At this rate, we're going to be in the New Jerusalem before the Kunkels have a chance to finish their presentation. (laughs) But we're not deciding to skip over about 1,500 years of redemptive history. We're going to take a detour. We're going to pull back from our tour through redemptive history for a few weeks. We're going to take a breather, and it's going to help us focus on the story of the gospel and the way that we see it, the way that we hear it. And then we'll come back in and pick up where we left off. Little Christians, here's my question for you this morning. Jesus does a lot of things for us in Scripture. Sometimes He tells us that we need to stop doing something that's wrong. Other times He tells us we need to start doing something that's right. Sometimes he tells us that we've misunderstood something and we need to change the way that we think or believe about it. Sometimes he shows us things that he does and he tells us to copy him. But he always does something for us first. Before any of these other things, Jesus does something for us. What is it? That's my question. What does Jesus always do for us first? This is the good news of Jesus as told to us by the disciple whom he loved. John 13, verses 1 through 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, Jesus rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. So Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, and you have no share with me, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you is clean, for he knew who was about to betray him. And that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Will you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, you have washed us, and your washing truly makes us clean. And we spend so many, of, so many of our days playing in the mud of our own grumbling and discontent. But by your grace and with your spirit, you cleanse us of that too. You are constantly turning our attention back to yourself. You are constantly returning to us the joy of our salvation. And we ask that you would continue that now. Use your word and remind us of what you what you have given us in yourself. Let us be satisfied there. Satisfy us again with your cleansing. Satisfy us again with our belonging to you. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? Well, it happened again. It's Peter, of course. It's always Peter, isn't it? First he's refusing, then he's demanding more. He's always correcting Jesus, like maybe Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe Peter needs to help him out a bit. Wouldn't it be a relief if you were reading through the Gospels and once, just once, it was Matthew or James or Thaddeus. You never get to hear anything about Thaddeus. That guy kept his head down. He stayed quiet. He must have played it safe, but it would be great if just once Thaddeus would take a turn stirring the pot. But he doesn't. Just like always, it's Peter again. Never shy about offering his two cents. Never taking stock of what's at stake. He just blurts out everything he thinks the Lord needs to know. Even at a dinner where Jesus reveals that Judas will betray him, Peter comes off like the difficult one. You watch this scene unfold and you're glad that Peter's feet are finally getting clean because that guy spends so much of his life putting them in his mouth. But in Peter's defense, this is no ordinary Seder. This isn't the Passover like they've always celebrated it. There's no clear code of conduct. You're supposed to put on your robe, and you're supposed to wear your belt, and you're supposed to have your staff symbolically ready. And you keep your sandals on because that's the drama of the event. This is their traditional meal, but it doesn't work like Thanksgiving works for us. You don't eat yourself into a stupor and pass out on the couch at Passover. This is the ritual meal where you celebrate by remembering how the Israelites ate in haste. You eat dressed and leaning toward the door like a sprinter at the starting line. You act as if you're ready to leave after 400 years of waiting. But here, Jesus settles in. Knowing that his hour had come, he loved his own until the end, the passage says. In the Exodus, and in the 1400 Passover celebration since, God had reminded his people vividly, dramatically, in action, that he is their deliverance and he is their leaving. And now at this Passover, Jesus performs the task that you normally reserve for the end of a journey. He removes their sandals and he washes their dirty feet. 
They're well-traveled, and he says they're done because he is their Passover, and he is their leaving. But when they're with him, they're not running away. When they're with him, they're home. It's that coming home that brings us to this detour. Now, I mentioned before we read this morning's passage that we've been moving through a significant portion of redemptive history, stopping along the way and noticing important episodes, tying them together. And we're going to pick that back up in a few weeks. But I think this break, this interlude is fitting. Don't think of this as a departure. Think of it more like a flash forward. It's way forward, but forward. We've done it differently over the years, but we normally spend a portion of the month of October remembering our identity as Reformed Christians. We do that in October because Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses his complaints and critiques against the church of his day, he nailed them up on the door at the church at Wittenberg in October 1517, October 31st to be specific. We're heirs of his theological and ecclesiastical reformation. So it's somewhat fitting that we would pull back at this point and devote a few sermons, a few Sundays, to some historical reflection As the church, our identity is shaped by the story of the gospel. And redemptive history, as we've been moving through it, is just that story told in chronological order. We don't normally think of it this way when we start talking about the Reformation, but the Reformation is just another chapter in that same story. The difference is we don't have a God-breathed scriptural account of the Reformation, but that doesn't mean that Jesus was taking any less care of his church. We live somewhere between the gospel going out unhindered at the end of Acts 28 and the heavens and the earth remade in Revelation 22. But in the middle, Jesus has not taken a vacation. In the middle, the Holy Spirit doesn't call in sick, stop caring for his own. So as Christians in the Reformed family, we're taking time to consider part of our particular family story but it fits with redemptive history. And we often devote time to the five solas, and our liturgy this month has been built around them. And we might spend time some years on the facts of the Reformation, who protested what, who wrote what, who argued when, who suffered at the hands of whom. And all those things are important, but sometimes we treat them like they're a museum exhibit. We treat them like facts to be memorized. Anecdotes to be cataloged and then put away and shelved. And when we do that, we miss our connection. We miss all the ways that we have our heritage in those things. What do these people and these events and these doctrines do for our life in the church now? How is Jesus giving more of himself to us in these things? Maybe more importantly, we should ask, is he giving us more of himself in these things. These people and events and doctrines are all important. But we enjoy our heritage most in the ways that we live under the gospel. Subtly, day to day, week to week, Sunday after Sunday in our worship. We enjoy the way that the gospel has been handed down to us. One of the most significant ways that it's been handed on to us by the reformers is in our preaching Reformed preaching is different. 
So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a few of the gifts that Jesus gave to his church and its proclamation of the gospel through his reformers. I think it fits here, and I said that it was a detour, but don't think of it as us leaving redemptive history. I pointed out because the reformers' preaching changed the way that we read and hear and preach the gospel to each other. It helps us understand the story of Scripture as a whole and with a clearer picture of what to look for and what to expect when we encounter it in all of these biblical episodes. This week in the office, I told Colin and Chad what I was planning to do for this short series of sermons, and they both looked at me the way you're looking at me now, skeptically. Colin warned me not to bore you with a seminary lecture, which is good advice. Kara will tell you I need to be called back from the brink of boredom often. Not mine, but yours. And Chad was a little cuter about it, because Chad is always a little cuter about everything. He told me to make sure I was constantly asking myself the question, what would the reformers do? He even offered to let me wear his rubber bracelet, but I declined. <laughs> now, whether or not Chad was as clever as he thought, he's right. We need to tell our family stories, but to be true to them, we have to tell them the way our family tells stories. Contrary to popular belief, the reformers were not anti-tradition, They appreciated and loved their Christian legacy in the church, the pastors and teachers and laymen that had come before them. They may have criticized them, but they appreciated the way the gospel had been given to them and lived before them. But they were never, ever satisfied with bare historical fact. They never delighted themselves in field manuals on doctrine. Everything had to be saturated and shaped by the language of Scripture and the gospel. So as we consider some of the hallmarks of Reformed preaching that grow out of the pages of Scripture, that fit the contours of the gospel, then we're going to do it like you would expect. We're going to do it the way the Reformers would have wanted it, by reading Scripture over and over to ourselves and expecting to hear it every time, expecting to hear the gospel on every page and nothing less. If left to ourselves we would always end up with a to-do list. At the end of every passage, we would come up with a list of things that Jesus has given us to do, a list of chores, a list of tasks, things that aren't being done, but he wants to see. Some of us have read this story a hundred times, and two things have stood out to us. Two things have struck us squarely every time we read it we see very clearly Jesus' incredibly humble service, and we hear very clearly his daunting call to do the same. And then I stop. I don't know why, but I stop there. And don't get me wrong, both of those things are here in this passage. But when I stop there, I haven't understood any of it. In 1521, Martin Luther published a collection of some of his gospel sermons. Sermons on the Gospels themselves. And he did it to serve as a partial template for his reforming doctrine and practice in the church. Entitled the preface, A Brief Instruction on What to Look for and Expect in the Gospels. And he wrote it to make it as clear as possible what he saw as the most urgent need for the church's preaching. And our needs the same. 
He insisted that we have to preach Christ, but we cannot be satisfied. We cannot finish if we preach Christ only or even primarily as our example. Fundamentally, if we are going to read Scripture as we ought, then we have to always first understand Christ as our gift. And so Luther wrote this in his preface. You should grasp Christ his words, works, and sufferings in a twofold manner. First is an example that is presented to you which you should follow and imitate. As St. Peter says, Christ suffered for us, thereby leaving us an example. Thus you see how he prays, fasts, helps people, and shows them love, and so also you should do, both for yourself and for your neighbor. However, this is the smallest part of the gospel, And on the basis of this, it cannot even be called gospel. For on this level, Christ is no more help to you than some other saint. His life remains his own and does not as yet contribute anything to you. In short, this mode of understanding Christ as simply an example does not make Christians only hypocrites. The chief article and foundation of the gospel is that before you take Christ as an example you accept and recognize Him as a gift, as a present that God has given to you and that is your own. This means that when you see or hear Christ doing or suffering something, you do not doubt that Christ Himself, with His deeds, with His sufferings, belongs to you. Luther was right. But I know that my own heart is too dull to catch it on its own. This is part of Jesus' gift to the church. The loud reminder that before he is ever our example, he is the gift that's been freely given to us by the Father. Now, I won't confess this for you on the off chance that it's not true of you. But when I read Scripture... And I mean every time I sit down to read Scripture on my own, I am always first and foremost drawn to examples. My heart grabs on to moral instruction. And my mind closes like a steel trap. All the knowledge of my failure. I'm drawn to these things like a moth to a flame, and I am always just as burned. And that's how I read this passage every time. I see Christ's humility. I see his service. And the only thing I seem to hear is the call to go and do the same, followed by a highlight reel of all my own failures. I don't have any of this humility. I've made a career out of refusing to serve. Over the last two weeks, I can look at myself self and say, I have been so self-absorbed and so self-indulgent, it's alarming. And no, that last part wasn't rhetorical. You can ask Kara after the service. She'll vouch for it. I hear the gospel this way. Jesus preaches his gospel to me in the pages of Scripture, and because I struggle to understand it, because I struggle to believe what it means for Jesus to give himself to me as a gift, I always treat him like the wife who just received a vacuum cleaner for an anniversary gift. 
It has a bow on it, but the message is clear. You're not doing enough. You're falling down on the job. Get after it and get to work. That's not the kind of gift that Jesus gives to his bride. Let's say it a little stronger. That's not the kind of gift that Jesus is for his bride. What it tells me is I need Luther and all those who came after him and you and the rest of my Reformed family to shake me awake because I've missed the bulk of the passage. Jesus does say that he's giving us an example, but louder than that, Jesus' own words and all of his actions and the way that John records it and reports it to us, all of these, scenes, all of these things scream that Jesus is really giving us himself. Far more than he's giving us an example, Jesus in this passage, Jesus in that upper room, is giving us himself. All the way through, the shape of the passage is not Jesus as pattern. We fix, we fix our eyes on it, we fixate our wills on it, but all through the passage, the shape is that Jesus is our gift. Over and over again, it's the idea of giving and re-giving. Verse 3 says that the Father had given all things into his hands. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus turns around and gives himself in service to the disciples. Verses 6 through 12, we have it clearly stated that Jesus is the washing they need. They need it, and he's their gift. And in verse 20, we have this chain of giving and receiving. Those who would receive the disciples he sends out really receive Jesus. And anyone who receives him as the Father's gift receives the Father also. And in the middle, to help shake me awake, we have John's exposition on the nature of Christ's gift to us. It's that awkward, difficult moment with Peter. Peter's refusing his gift, followed immediately by Peter demanding more of it. Don't give it to me. No, wait, if I need it, give me lots. Give me more. I don't think Peter's just being polite on the front end. He refuses just like we do. You can't serve me. I'm supposed to serve you. No, 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 Jesus, you go sit down. I'm dirty, certainly, but I need to earn my keep. And in his grace, both to Peter and to us, Jesus pushes back. Again, he's not just being polite. This isn't like Peter and Jesus fighting over the check at the end of the meal. No, no, let me get it. No, no, I insist. Jesus doesn't haggle over any of it. He tells us very plainly what's at stake. Look, if you won't receive me in the washing I have as a gift, the unsettling inappropriate, scandalous, and over-the-top gift that I am, if you won't receive me like that, then you won't belong to me. So we answer with Peter, if that's the case, Lord, then you need to know I'm dirtier than you think. If If that's the case, then go ahead and roll up your sleeves and don't be shy with the water. I need more than your offering. Because you don't know how long I can carry a grudge. You don't know how little I actually love people. Or how inadequate and cheesy I feel when I try to preach the gospel to my family, my wife, and my children. 
You can't possibly know how much lust and how much coveting I have bottled up in this heart, waiting to spill out. You don't know how I twist moderation into obsessive, starving control over food. You don't know all the things that I've done in my past. You don't know all the dirt that I carry from what's been done to me. The uninvited sexual advances or the string of hollow personal conquests that I chase down afterwards. Jesus, I know you say you're good. And I know you're trying to help. But listen, you don't know brokenness like this and nobody is this good. So Jesus says it again. Lest we miss it. Those who haven't been washed can't clean anything. First and foremost, Jesus says to us, you need me. You need the washing that I have and that I am. You need the washing that I am for you. And better than that, you don't need anything more. If I wash you, then you're clean. I know your dirt, he says, and not just because I've been around the block a few times, not just because I've seen dirt like that before. I know your filth because I wore it myself. Not just dirt like yours, your dirt. On my cross, I wore your filth, not just some of it, not just the obvious pieces, not the acceptable stuff, but the stuff you keep hidden, the stuff you hope no one finds out, the most hideous, the most shameful, every bit of your soul-staining filth I know all of it. I've taken all of it. I've worn all of it. And it died with me there on the cross. It didn't follow me out of the tomb. And this is the good news. The good news that by His cross and resurrection, Jesus and His washing have become our gift. It's good news for our children washed in baptism who will need to be taught and reminded of Jesus' complete washing It's good news for those who have never believed but have started to find something compelling in Jesus and they can feel Him drawing them into His grace. It's especially good news for all of us who have lived under the shelter of the cross so long. We we think we have something to offer by way of imitation. As if we can imitate Jesus and be someone else's cleansing. If that's you, then don't miss the chain of giving and re-gifting that comes at the end of the passage. The Father sent the Son, and the Son sends us. But we don't give ourselves. That's not the gift at all. We don't have anything to offer on our own. Our service and our sacrifice will never be enough. But in those things... The Father and the Son are giving themselves through us. The Father and the Son are giving more of themselves to us, and that is always enough. If that's what you have, then you're not poor. You don't have to ask for more. You don't have to ask for seconds because what was given is insufficient. What you have is enough. Jesus and His washing, His cross, His resurrection, and His Spirit are enough. And by His grace, they're yours. Someone asked me earlier this week what I was preaching on because he wanted an inside track. He wanted to be able to say that he knew ahead of time. 
So I told him, and he said, well, why don't you wash my feet? And that way, when you preach, you'll have this great illustration about how you've already applied it. I know he was joking, so I jokingly responded. That wouldn't do it because, truer to form, I wouldn't wash your feet. And if I don't wash your feet, that gives me the great pastoral confession at the pulpit because I get to say I'm supposed to do this, but I don't. We all feel connected and you feel better about yourself. I feel worse about myself. That's the way it's supposed to go, right? And then it all sank in for me last night. Much, if not all, of my self-absorbed misery in life as a whole, but especially over the last several weeks, comes from more than my refusal to wash feet. It comes almost exclusively from my refusal to be washed. A refusal to agree that I am truly needy and that I can, in fact, be satisfied by what Jesus is for me. Fundamentally, what I want is for Jesus to assign me some work and for me to earn my keep. But that's not what he said he was going to do. He didn't say, I've come to give you stuff to do. He said, I've come to give you life. At times he said it more emphatically, I have come to be your life. The life that you lost in the garden, the life that you scratch and claw at, that that nags at your soul as a goodness that you don't deserve and a goodness that you cannot have because of all of your rebel loves and disbelief. That's the very life I came to give to you. And no, you don't deserve it. You never could and you never will, but when I give you my gospel... My life, my death and resurrection, my spirit, my church, and my holy fight against your sin, my washing, and my hope of the way that things, are, that things ought to be and the way that they one day will be, when I make all of these things yours by my grace, then they're yours. They're my scandalous, unbelievable, irrevocable gifts to you. Because Jesus says, when I become your gift, I am yours, and you are clean. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, you have satisfied us with the gift of yourself. You have made yourself our Passover, our feast, and our washing. You are our righteousness our life that conquers death, our wisdom, our defense, our only plea, our intercessor, our great high priest who brings us to God, our king, the defeater of our enemies, our pardon for guilt, and the remover of our sin. But we're forgetful. We forget all that you have become for us. And your goodness for us doesn't stop there. You never tire of reminding us that you are our gift. Remind us of that beautiful, scandalous gift. The gift of your life and your cross and your resurrection. Your grace that changes us and the comfort of your spirit. Remind us of these things as we kick against them and refuse you. As we say that you should never wash us and you say you need it and I have it and it's yours. Remind us this week 
in this month, in this year. Remind us in our marriages, in our friendships, in our families, as we love our parents and love our children, that this is how you are good to us. You have given yourself to us freely. Let us never forget it. Change our hearts by it as you've promised to. We would be satisfied with you as our gift. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.